Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you, if you're at home, if you'll open up your copy of Scripture and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. If you're in the room, do the same. We're going to be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Um, I live in a day and age where most of my uh, communication now is by text message or by phone call. I think many of you are, are the same. But I can remember the days when the only way that you could communicate with someone was a letter or a phone call. If you wanted to write something to someone, I remember the pre-email days. Uh, I remember early on in my relationship with my now wife, uh, Jean, where we would write love letters to one another. Do you remember writing love letters? Maybe some of you have some of those love letters still from that, that dear person that you're, you're married to. Well, what we're going to look at in 1 Timothy is a letter. A letter from a mentor to a protege. Uh, Paul write, wrote two letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. He wrote one to another worker in the ministry named Titus. And these are called the pastoral epistles. And they're written as instead of instructions from Paul to Timothy for Timothy to make sure some things happened in a place where Paul set him up for assignment. In this case, Timothy was responsible for the churches in, uh, in Ephesus or the church in Ephesus. So Timothy was there and Paul was writing this letter to Timothy. And I don't know too much, I don't remember too much about how I signed my letters, but, but I never put my name at the front of the letter. And the letter, the way I was taught, in a formal letter, of course you do. You highlight your name and who you're from. But when I was writing to my wife, you know, or my wife-to-be, or the girl I hoped would be my wife back in those days, I just put her name at the front, right? I introduced her, and then down at the bottom I would give some kind of inscription. What I want you to notice is what Paul does in his letter to Timothy. Notice this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we'll stop there, we'll pick up, we'll read through verse 7 in a moment. But I want, I want you to notice something there. If we're not careful, sometimes what we tend to do with First and Second Timothy and Titus is we read them as if they're merely a letter from a pastor to a pastor or from a mentor to his protege or from someone that is supposed to learn. And this is more pastoral than it is anything else. It is pastoral. But notice how Paul introduces himself. He begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of God. An apostle of Jesus Christ under the command of God, the charge of God, from God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Why did Paul have to say that to Timothy? I mean, Paul met Timothy uh, when Paul was doing his missionary journeys. He met Timothy. Timothy was either a brand new believer under Paul's ministry... That, that Paul led to Christ, or he was a young man who had come to faith in Jesus and, and was so enamored by the preaching of Paul that he joined Paul on missionary journeys, that he walked, walked with Paul and served with Paul and served alongside Paul. And in this instance, Paul's left him at Ephesus to perform a specific function. Why would Paul have to indicate that he's an apostle of God if he's writing a personal letter to Timothy? One thing I want us to get is this letter is not just for pastors. This letter is not just for, for ministers. This letter is for the church 
that pastors pastor. In other words, there is a set of instructions that we're going to read through in the letter to 1 Timothy that are not just for me as your pastor. They're not just for the leaders of our church as far as our, our ministerial staff. They're not just for the deacons at our church, although there are specific sets of instructions for deacons and for pastors and for widows and for church leaders. But this is a letter for the church. It's a letter for the church so that we can make sure we remain theologically sound. Paul's going to spend a lot of time on that. And that we also remain loving in the way that we characterize ourselves. Albert Barnes in his commentary put it this way. But it is not to the ministry only that these epistles are of so much value. They are of scarcely less importance to the church at large in its vitality, its purity, its freedom from strife, its zeal and love and triumph in spreading the gospel depend on the character of the ministry. If the church will prosper from age to age, the pulpit must be filled with a pious, learned, laborious, and devoted ministry. And one of the first cares of the church should be that such a ministry should be secured. This great object cannot be better obtained than by keeping the instructions in these epistles steadily before the minds of the members of the church. And though a large part of them is particularly adapted to the ministers of gospel, yet the church can find in no better way to promote its own purity and prosperity than by a prayerful and attentive study of the epistles to Timothy and Titus. I read that because here's what I would like you to do as we work through 1 Timothy. There are going to be specific sets of times that we're talking primarily to pastors or primarily to deacons or primarily to church leaders. But all those sets of instructions are not just for me to apply, but they're for us as a church to recognize and adopt and hold on to closely because it's our responsibility as a church to make sure that the character and conduct of those leading us, but also the character and conduct of us as a church reflects what Paul is teaching in 1 Timothy. He's going to talk to us about doctrine. He's going to talk to us about theology. He's going to talk to us about false teachers and how to notice them and how to avoid them. And by the way, this is one of the books that I really, really love, not only because it is written with a pastor in mind, with with a leader of a church in mind, but I'm a little bit of a theology geek. I'm a theology nerd. I'd just as soon read a theology textbook as I would read anything else. And so as I work through 1 Timothy, this is really rich and helpful for me. My prayer is that as it's helpful for me, for our pastoral staff, for our church leaders, it'll be helpful for us as a congregation to grasp what we need to hold on to so that we can be the gospel-centered church God expects of us. The title of this sermon is The Aim of a Gospel-Centered Church. The aim comes from verse 5. If you will, pick up reading with me in verse 3. Paul wrote, As I urged you, To Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 5, this is the aim. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either with what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
Now, sometimes we confuse Timothy for the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And certainly he performed some of those roles, but I want you to catch what what Paul said. He said to Timothy, remain at Ephesus. I'm not sure that it is accurate to say that Timothy was the primary pastor of the church. I think Timothy was an apostolic delegate. In other words, I think what had happened is Paul spent several years, according to Acts chapter 20, he spent three years in Ephesus preaching and teaching, inviting people to understand the gospel, respond to the gospel, hear the gospel, and he preached and he taught and he planted that church and built that church and developed that church. And evidently, there were some things going on in the church that were problematic. He had received word that there were some false teachers, which he addressed very early on. Immediately in verse 3, he acknowledges that one of the problems that's going on is there are false teachers. False teachers that had probably become elders in the church or some of the teaching pastors in the church. And so Paul is calling them out at the outset. So what he did is he sent Timothy or left Timothy in Ephesus with giving Timothy the specific instructions essentially to set the church right, to oversee the decisions that were made, to make sure that the leadership was in right order, to make sure that the church was doing what it ought to do and believing what it ought to believe. And so Timothy may have been a pastor, certainly was a church planner, part of Paul's ministry team, but in the direct sense of him pastoring the church at Ephesus, I think it's safer to say that he's an apostolic delegate. He is serving a specific function for a specific time for the church at Ephesus. And Paul gives some instructions. He gives some instructions to Timothy, and by extension, he gives us some instructions. Uh, Three instructions for us in order to remain a gospel-centered church. The first instruction is this. Embrace one aim. One aim. Love. Verse 5 says this. The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. Aim is the Greek word telos. It means the end. It means the goal. The, the, The image is this. Folks, no matter what else happens in our lives, we are to be people who are identified as being loving. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 22 that the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. Jesus went on to say in John chapter 13 that night, uh, right after he had served his disciples, washed their feet, right after he had served them, or right before, rather, he served them the the Lord's table, he said to them, "The, the world will know you by your love. The aim of our charge is love. No matter what else we study and learn and develop, and let me tell you, there are some things we need to know, and there's, there, there's an importance to sound doctrine and faithful teaching and good theology, but no matter what else is going on in our lives, we as followers of Jesus should be identified as people who love. Because such great love has bought us. Folks, the reason, the aim of our charge, the reason, the responsibility that we have as Christians who name the name of Jesus is to show love and live love, not only in relationship with God by loving Him, but in relationship with others by loving people. And sometimes people aren't lovable. But the reason that ought to identify us is because that is who we have been made to be through Jesus Christ. No church ought to be a church that is identified as unloving. Every church that is a church of Jesus Christ ought to be a church that is identified as one that loves God and loves other people. 
That's who we are. We're to embrace one aim, and that aim is love. Now, that aim is framed in the context of sound doctrine. Paul has talked about false teaching. We're going to move to that in just a moment in, in instruction number two. But listen, sound doctrine frames love. One of the things we need to grasp is in order for us to be faithful and loving outwardly like we ought to, we need to make sure we believe the right things with relation to Scripture. False teaching, bad doctrine, poor theology, they, they, they cover up love. They shade love. Sometimes they completely distract love. Sometimes they completely distort the mind of the church away from what it means to be loving and to be Christ-like. All of that is framed by love. And one of the things we need to grasp is the better we understand who God is and what God wants from us in the pages of Scripture, the better we'll be able to love God and love others. Commentator Frank Sheed put it this way. He said, A virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. But if a man loves God knowing a little about him, he should love God more from knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him. Folks, in the course of the next several weeks, several months really, as we work through the book of 1 Timothy, this letter, we're going to dive into some controversial passages of Scripture. If you've done what I've asked you to do and read ahead, you're going to read some verses and you're going to be like, what in the world? How's the pastor going to deal with that one? What does this mean? There are some texts that aren't really easy in the book of 1 Timothy. There are some passages of Scripture in 1 Timothy that are good for us theology geeks. We love to think about the, the responsibilities of overseers and elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We like to think about those things and dive into what does that mean. We're going to use words like polity and ecclesiology, ecclesiology being the doctrine of the church. We're, we're going to talk about church government and all kinds of things that for me, as your pastor, this is the world I live in. These are the books that I read. This is what I teach when I teach at Bible college. And, and, and I kind of geek out on it. You're going to hear that. Sometimes you're probably just going to shake your head. My wife will probably sometimes shake her head and be like, man, you know, he's, he's traveling a road that very few of us are, are traveling. But I want you to stay with us and here's why. Because the better we know who God wants us to be from the pages of Scripture, the more sound, consistent, and faithful our doctrine, the better we're able to love God. That's what Paul teaches us. He lets us know and lets Timothy know that, listen, the more we're clear about what God expects of us and us putting it into practice and knowing it and abiding by it, the better off we'll be in loving God because false teaching and unhealthy doctrine shadows us away from our mission. You want to distract from the gospel? Find somebody who will teach some error and get some people going off kilter. And that's exactly what was going on at the church at Ephesus. Our one aim, embrace one aim, is love. But number two, we're to distinguish the two types of teachers and this is really going to be a lesson for all of the book of Ephesus or book of 1 Timothy. For, for this, for this uh, ministry that Paul is assigning to Timothy, we're to distinguish two types of teachers, the false teachers and the true teachers. Or the people who teach sound doctrine and the people who teach 
not sound doctrine or not healthy doctrine. And let me illustrate that by looking at the two types that we see in the first seven verses. There's Paul, obviously. right? Paul loved the church. He spent his entire adult life as a minister of the gospel, preaching and teaching Jesus, planting churches, going to place after place after place, raising up. I mean, he spent three years in Ephesus preaching the good news of Jesus to these people and starting this church. Look at how he's defined. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua, the one who was sent to be our Savior and our Redeemer. By what? By the command. Listen, Paul isn't just doing what he's doing because he likes the acclaim or he likes the persecution. No, he's doing what he's doing because God told him, this is what you're supposed to do. He's under charge from heaven. And and of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. So the first teacher that we need to look at is Paul. And the instructions that we're going to read come from the pen of an apostle who longed for this church, the church at Ephesus, to be right doctrinally and right in the way they behaved. And he's not the only good teacher, true teacher. Timothy is a true teacher. Notice what's said about Timothy. Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, scholars debate whether or not Paul was the one that led Timothy to faith in Jesus. It's certainly possible. You can find that and discover the interactions between Paul and Timothy in the book of Acts. Uh, But there is no doubt that Timothy's ministry, Timothy's responsibility, his learning how to be a, a pastor, an evangelist, a church planner, came from his time following Paul. Watching Paul, learning from Paul, listening to Paul, being given assignments from Paul. My true child in the faith, and it's a term of, infe- of affection. It's an acknowledgement that, Timothy, I have, I have uh, spent time caring for you, and you are someone who's in the faith, and that word faith, you're going to see that all over the book of 1 Timothy. It doesn't just mean your personal decision to trust Jesus. That is included in that idea and that word faith, it, it, but it means further doctrine. Like, what do we believe as a church? The faith, the Christian faith. So when you read that, my true child in the faith, it's not just Timothy's personal conversion story, though that's a part of it. It's Timothy's understanding of what the gospel is and, and what Christianity is supposed to be about. He goes on to give us this introduction, this introductory phrase, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, most of the time in the New Testament, it's grace and peace. Grace and peace. Peter does that. Paul does that over and over again, grace and peace. But but, uh, in this instance, Paul adds mercy. And there's a reason for that because here's the deal. Some of us are never going to ever think we identify with Paul. Paul is this spiritual giant, this apostle, this hero. And I don't go by the title of apostle. I think the apostles were a specific title for a specific time in Christian history. I think the time of the apostles in the sense of delegated apostleship from the authority of God, I think those are done. I think if you want to use the term apostle as someone who's sent like a missionary, a church planner, I think you can do that in a technical sense. But the apostles, they're they're done. We're not Paul. But let me tell you about Timothy. Timothy was young. Paul would tell him, go on to tell him, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Timothy was timid, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, We have been given a spirit of fear, not of timidity. And Timothy, I think, based on that instruction, was someone who was young and he was a little bit laid back, sometimes timid. He was also someone who had a weak constitution. Paul tells him later on in 1 Timothy chapter 5, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, for, for the problems that you have. In other words, use some medicine. 
Make sure you take care of your body. I'm going to tell you something about Timothy. Timothy is a person that is instructed to guard the gospel and oversee and teach. But he is just an everyday human like you and me. Paul was too. But sometimes Paul we kind of put on this pedestal. I'll tell you something about Timothy. Timothy's someone like us. He had struggles like we had struggles. They're noted in the text. And yet Paul gave him instructions to make sure he guarded the gospel. Those are the true teachers. And we're going to read Paul's instruction throughout the book of 1 Timothy. But there are also some false teachers. We need to be able to distinguish between those who are teaching the truth and those who are teaching error. Who are the false teachers? Pick up in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons... And I think Paul would identify a couple of those later in chapter 1. You can read on ahead and pick up their names, uh, Hymenius and Alexander in uh, verse, verse 20. But uh, certain persons, not to teach any different doctrine. Now, any different doctrine, that's a term that's only used by Paul. He probably coined the phrase. It's probably something he made up. He made up his own word. It literally means other teach. That's the literal translation. What he's saying is... Charge those who are telling different things than what I told you to say. In other words, anybody who's teaching anything that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, that needs to be stopped. It doesn't need to happen anymore. Don't need to be distracted by these other things, by false teaching, false doctrine. And what were they devoted to? Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So we're to distinguish two types of teachers. Paul and Timothy are the one side, that the true teachers, the sound doctrine, that are teaching things that are, in, that are consistent with, the, with, the, with Scripture. And then the false teachers, in this case, were teaching things like endless genealogies and myths. And so what they were doing, they were going back to, to Jewish genealogies, such as in Genesis and other places in the Old Testament. And they were trying to draw connections between the Jewish histories and genealogies and the Christian church in places like Ephesus. And they were trying to draw connections for several reasons. Probably in some cases to try to say, you know, if you're part of this lineage, then you're closer to God and may not need Jesus. So what they were doing is they were covering the gospel by drawing connections to a genealogical record. I'm glad that the Bible tells us it doesn't matter who our parents are, who our parents were, who our grandparents were, as to whether or not we can get to heaven. What matters is that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But what these other teachers were doing, these false teachers, is they were covering up and shading and making the gospel unclear because they were distracting the church with these Jewish genealogies. And they were also picking up on Jewish myths. Picking up stories from the Old Testament or stories from some of the stories around the Old Testament and teaching them in ways that were distracting the gospel. Say, Pastor, does that kind of stuff happen today? Well, absolutely it does. I mean, there have been books written within my ministry lifetime where people who who seem to think they've developed Bible codes... And they count numbers and they count letters in the Old Testament. And they say, well, if you look at the right set of numbers and the right set of codes, all of these, they prophesied all of these things that took place in the 20th century and the 19th century and and, and into the 21st century and all this kind of stuff. But folks, that's just crazy. Let me tell you why that stuff's crazy. Because it distracts from the clarity of the gospel. 
distracts from the clarity of the gospel. Listen, I deal, dealt with some of this stuff when I was a Bible college student, even as a professor. There are some folks that get locked into some theological positions. And, and I think as, as you listen to me preach, you've heard me preach, I'm pretty clear about the theology that I hold, and I'm going to hold some of it, the clear teaching of Scripture very tightly, and then there are places I'm going to hold a little less tightly because there's some differences of opinion. But there's some folks who get so locked into a theological position that they evangelize their theological position more than they evangelize lost people with the gospel. What does that do? It distracts from the gospel. It's other teach. It's not what God desires. God does not want us to be in a situation where we're so frustrated and so, de- so, so bound up in our own controversies that we can't communicate the gospel and the love of Jesus clearly. I'm going to be honest. I think a text like this is a healthy reminder as to why that denominations are not always a bad thing. Because here at at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, we believe that baptism is by immersion. We're not going to argue about that. We're not going to debate that. We think that's what the Scripture teaches. But we've got some Methodist friends that don't think that, and some Presbyterian friends that don't think that, and we've got some... uh, some, some, And I I think they may be wrong, and, and they probably think I may be wrong. But you know what? If we all came together in the same congregation, do you know what we would end up doing? We'd end up arguing about the proper method of baptism. And and that's not healthy. Why is that not healthy? Because if we're distracted by a secondary when we're supposed to be focusing on a primary, that's not healthy. But what was going on here was more than just a difference of opinion on baptism. It was serious false teaching. It was significant problems in the church where these teachers were distracting from the gospel mission. They were covering up what needed to be taught because they were bought into their false Teaching. And Paul warned the church that it would happen. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul was on his journey back to Jerusalem, he stopped and he invited the elders of the church from Ephesus to join him. And they came to him in Acts chapter 20 and he shared with them, listen, I'm not guilty. I have preached the whole counsel of God's word. And notice what he says in Acts chapter 20 verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then as he finished up, he he hugged them and they they teared up and they cried. He was emotional about that moment. Why? Because he knew that within their own congregation were going to arise people who were teaching false doctrine. Why is it that you and I as a church have to be vigilant about what we teach and about who teaches and about who's in our church? Why do we have to do that? Because it is possible, if it happened in Ephesus under Paul's ministry, it is possible that even in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, somebody would show up and start teaching false things. In every church I've been a part of, stuff like that has happened. Every church I've been a ministry in, the church where I was, not specifically here, I won't tell you any stories, but at another church where I was at, we had some Sunday school teachers that went off reservation. I mean, they went way off reservation. Started talking about all kind of satanic and demonic things and how we could fight spiritual warfare, how demons liked watery places, and if you stayed away from lakes and rivers, you'd be better off and you wouldn't deal with demonic stuff. I mean, it's just weird, I mean, weird stuff. 
That's off-reservation. It's not gospel-centered. It's not the aim is love. And, and it distracts from the mission. I'm going to tell you something. It can happen here. It can happen here if we're not vigilant, if we're not careful. The reason it's important for us to look through passages of Scripture like this and text and deal with theology is to make sure that we're not guilty by extension of promoting some kind of false teaching, but also to make sure that we're able to identify it and recognize it. If you turn on the television and listen to a prosperity gospel preacher, a lot of what they say sounds like some of what I say. But there's some of what they say that doesn't sound like anything that I say. And what we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus is be able to identify that. We're to be able to distinguish where there is teaching that is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we work through the book of 1 Timothy, part of what we're going to do, and part of this is going to help us in interpreting some of those hard passages. One of the reasons Paul dealt with some really hard things is because those issues that were going on in in, in Ephesus were distracting from the gospel. One of the reasons he made some clear expectations about how to behave and what the worship service is to look like and who's to lead the church is because in the case at Ephesus, some really bad things were going on that were distracting from the mission of the church. And if we see it in light of, okay, Paul's trying to bring some clarity to these uh, doctrinal issues so that the church isn't distracted from the mission, ah, okay, that makes a little more sense. So we're going to, that will be an interpretive help as we work through the rest of 1 Timothy. So distinguish two types of teachers, false and true. And then here's what we need to do. This is the practical part for us as we work through the final portion of this sermon tonight or this morning if you're watching at home. Cultivate, cultivate three sources of love. Three sources of love. Paul defines those in verse 5. We're to cultivate the three sources of love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So where does, good, where does love come from? In our own lives, where does it come from? It comes from a pure heart. That's a phrase that's used all over in the New Testament. Jesus talks about being pure of heart. Talked about having clean hands and pure hearts. How do you make sure your heart is pure? You ever wondered that? Have you ever tried to make your heart pure? I know I did. When I was a teenager, I tried to make my heart pure. I tried to clean myself up. I tried to wash my own sin away. I tried to do enough good deeds to, uh, to discount the bad deeds. I tried to do all that. Let me tell you something. You cannot make your heart pure. I can't do it. I can't make my heart clean enough. Only God can give us a pure heart. Why does love stem from a pure heart first? Because love, the kind of love that God wants us to have, the agape love that spreads out and loves people because of who God is and loves God because of who He is, it's the kind of love that can only come from a pure heart, a heart cleaned by God. I'm going to tell you this. What does that mean for us practically? It means, number one, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've not trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your heart's not clean. You're not, you're not right with God if you're watching at home. And you are not pure of heart. It's because you've got sin that you're holding on to. And the only person that can cleanse that sin is God. The false teachers would tell you that you can get your sin cleansed or you get right with God by your genealogy or by diving into this myth story or by doing all sort of other weird things. But the gospel doesn't tell you that. The gospel tells you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and the only one that can cleanse your sins, the only one that can give you a pure heart is Jesus Christ. And He died on the cross so that your heart could be cleansed. So the image for us as Christians is this. To cultivate a pure heart means that we're in recognition that we need cleansing. 
The Bible tells us that when we're a Christian, we don't stop sinning the moment we're converted. It tells us that really we need to live in an attitude of repentance and confession always. 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to what? Cleanse us from our sins and wash us from unrighteousness. So for us, cultivating a pure heart means cultivating an attitude of confession and repentance. I'm going to tell you something. There are times I'm guilty of not loving. There are times I'm guilty of all kinds of sins. So are you. And what we need to do as Christians, if we want to cultivate love in our lives, we cultivate it at the outset by confessing our sins regularly before God. A pure heart. Secondly, not just a pure heart, but a good conscience. It's the idea of just being obedient. A good conscience. A seared conscience is what the false teachers had. Paul will reference that later on in the letter. A good conscience is the kind of person that's obedient. That, that They're not inconsistent with what God says to do and what they're supposed to do. Have a good conscience. Their conscience is right before God. So when God tells you to obey, when He tells you to give, when He tells you to go, serve, we obey. That's what a good conscience is. In other words, it's a consistent life of obedience. For example, if you know you're supposed to be baptized by immersion, if that's who you're supposed to be, you've been saved, you've been converted, you need to be baptized by immersion. And you know that's the next step. But you refuse to do that, you're not living with a good conscience. You're not living in an obedient attitude before God because there's something God's telling you to do. Scripture tells you to do. It's clear. And, and we're not abiding by that. That's just one example. There are plenty of others. So we're to cultivate a pure heart, a good conscience, and then thirdly, a sincere faith. It is literally a faith without hypocrisy. That means several things, at least in the way we, we could apply it. First of all, it means to make sure that you have a faith in Jesus Christ. Study your heart to make sure you've trusted in Jesus alone to be your Savior. There is no other way to be forgiven, no other way to go to heaven than to make sure that you're, you have forgiven. And you're forgiven through a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. That's part of what it means to have a sincere faith or a faith without hypocrisy. Another part of what it means to have a sincere faith is a faith that outwardly is not inconsistent with the faith we say we believe inwardly. In other words, we don't abide by false teaching. One of the greatest ways that we can do that is to make sure that our doctrine as a church is sound, but our doctrine as individuals is sound as well. I believe in this so much that uh, a couple of years ago, January of 2020, we spent a couple of months working through a theology series at our church. We were about eight weeks into that series when uh, COVID changed all of our schedules, just kind of changed everything up. And so our Wednesday night adjusted from a Bible study time and a theology time to a worship service time. Well, as, as I've been going back through 1 Timothy and as I've been wrestling with what God wants us to learn from this book, I've been reminded that I think it's so important, and, and Scripture teaches it's so important that we're good doctrinally, we're right and sound doctrinally, that we're going to bring that back. Uh, by the month of March, Wednesday night, will still be a, a time of teaching and probably a time of a few songs, but instead of us having a worship service we record, Wednesday night, adult time in this, in this room will be... Theology 101. And we're going to go back and work through good, sound, biblical doctrine. So if this is your worship service now, don't stop coming. If this is the only time you can come, don't stop coming. This is going to be a time of teaching and a time of, of sound doctrine. Now, for those of you that are at home and, and, and you want to maybe come back, you started that with us two years ago, I would invite you back. We're going to begin doing that in March 
of this year. So give you a few weeks to kind of think about it and prepare on it. We'll tell you a little bit more what that'll look like for our recorded services in a few weeks. But I believe in it. I believe it matters that you and I are sound doctrinally. It's important that it's not just me who gets doctrine. It's not just our staff that gets doctrine. It's, it's our church leaders. It's our church members. We know who we are and who we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to believe. And, and, and listen, I've told you I geek out on this. The other morning, uh, we were getting ready for school, and I'd got my boys their breakfast, and they were sitting down at the, at the breakfast table. And Will, my oldest son, asked me this question. He said, Dad, how do you think time works in heaven? Which is a, you know, for, for me, he loves philosophy and theology. That's a trippy question. Because time is connected to space and it's connected to light. God is outside of space and God is light. How does time work with God? Now, personally, I believe time works way differently with God than it does with us. How it works differently with God, Augustine dealt with that. And that's a really trippy answer too. I don't really know. But we got to started kind of chatting about this. And I started talking with my oldest son about these, these questions. And I'm going to tell you, it's important that we ask good questions and give good answers. And we were talking about heaven and what was going on in heaven. And my youngest son, Nathan, looked over at me and he asked this question. He said, uh, Dad, do you think I'll get to give Jesus a hug when we get to heaven? And I, I, kind, of, I kind of had a little tear in my eye when he, when he said that. And I thought... You know, my son and I are sitting here, my oldest, we're having this theological conversation, these, these what I think are really important conversations, and my youngest son brings it back to the very point of love. Sound doctrine matters. And we're going to talk through some issues of sound doctrine, but sound doctrine matters. Why? Because it tremendously matters that we love God and that we love others. Amen? Maybe you're here tonight, maybe you're at home, and you need to cultivate some things. Maybe you've got some confession to bring before the Lord. Maybe you've got some things that aren't right between you and Him. Maybe it's not, it's that, that. Maybe it's a disobedience issue. Your conscience isn't where it ought to be. Or maybe you want to work on your faith. The sincerity, the lack of hypocrisy in your faith. I don't know. What I want to invite you to do is this. If there is something that God has kind of pinpointed on your heart and life, the altar will be open for you to come and talk with God and pray with God. If there are some things that you're not sure about, not clear about with regard to Christianity or doctrine or theology, I'm just going to tell you at the outset, that's okay. We're all learners. We're all still growing and understanding. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to ask God to give you some insights over the course of this series. As we read through this wonderful letter and as we work through it. If you're struggling with your faith, listen, this is the time to really work out your faith. Ask God to work in your heart and life. And, and for all of us, I would really ask you to do this. The aim of our charge is love from a pure heart. Love for who? For God and for others. Every single one of us knows somebody or knows several somebodies who are not where they need to be with God. Maybe their faith is at odds with God now. Maybe they're, they're just not living it out. Maybe they're not in church. Maybe they're not a believer. I don't know. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As we work through this series, as we think deeply about theology, as we work through these topics, will you keep that person in the front of your mind? 
Will you keep them in your life to show love to them? Maybe take them a meal. Maybe write them a note. Maybe, maybe show them love somehow. Because folks, what really matters, what really matters is that we love God and that we love other people. The aim of our charge. Yeah, doctrine is important. But the reason it's important is so that we'll constantly love like we've been taught to love in the gospel. Stand with me if you will. Father, we come to you. I thank you for pages of scripture. I thank you for this wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy. Thank you for what we're going to learn from it, for what we have learned from it. And in this moment of contrition and uh, response, Lord, I, I pray that you would cleanse us of our sinfulness. Maybe where we've not had a faith that's without hypocrisy. Maybe, Lord, there's an area where we're not obedient. Maybe there's something going on between us and another brother or sister in Christ that needs to be reconciled. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that you would help us be willing to confess it, be clean from it, be right with you. And I pray, Lord, that you'd protect our church from false teaching in my own life as the communicator and pastor. Father, in the life of our Sunday school teachers and leaders, help us to be able to distinguish true teaching from from false teaching. Help us to be clear. Help us to be grounded doctrinally. So, Heavenly Father, we can be clear with the gospel and clear with our love for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.